Hi, this is Braden Kelly, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tanvi Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Braden Kelly. Braden is an experienced innovation speaker, trainer, and digital transformation specialist. In addition to being one of the co-founders of the respected website InnovationExcellence.com, Braden has published more than 500 articles on innovation, as well as being the author of the book Stoking Your Innovation Bonfire. His latest book is Charting Change, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Hi, Braden. Welcome to the show. Hi, Fender. Now, Braden... I don't think there's anyone out there who will disagree with the fact that every organization out there is now operating in this environment of continual change, whether that change is driven by initiatives within the organization or whether it's something that's reflected by what's going on around us. And yet, while there's often this acceptance of a change being this new normal, we still see many leaders and their organizations grappling with change of how do we get people on board with accepting these inevitable changes to the way we do things. So before we dive into some of the insights you share in your book, I was wondering if you could shed some light on why there's this open understanding of the necessity of change for an organization's long-term growth and evolution. And at the same time, there's this perceptible resistance to embracing it and making it native to the way we approach how to make our shared purpose a reality. Sure. So I think that one of the great challenges that we face is the changes everywhere in, in today's environment. And so we see changes in how our governments are operating, changes in how our social institutions are operating, changes in, in family structures, changes in the economy and how it operates across the world and how economies are becoming more interdependent. So, you know, China sneezes and the United States catches the flu and it goes around the world. So so there's, there's all of this change and there's change in our uh, personal lives, of course, and change in our business lives. And so because there's so much change, people sometimes feel overwhelmed and, and they don't always know where to start. And so I think if we're really going to try to get people on board with this idea of continuous change as being the new normal and being prepared for it and having a plan for it, we need to, to, to help them a little bit by giving them some, some tools that they can use and some, some, some simple framework so that they just don't throw up their hands and, and think that it's too hard and, and don't try to, to make any uh, structured progress towards addressing the changes that are before them and the changes that they need to make in order to be successful. And so I think that in, in much the same way with my first book, Stoking Your Innovation Bonfire, I tried to, to help people within their organizations use the book to craft a common language for innovation. Um, because if you ask 100 people what innovation is or what innovation means, you'll get 100 different definitions. I think that we kind of have the same thing with change and that um, change means different things to different people because it affects different people in different ways. And in terms of how we approach change, there's not really a good standard way of doing it. There's not a common way that people approach it and so everybody does it differently a lot of us do it by the seat of our pants 
And so it's really difficult as you go into trying to create a, a culture of continuous change within your organization or to create a capability for continuous change within your organization to actually achieve that because you're not giving people anything to hang on to or pe people uh, a common way of approaching change. So everybody's doing it differently within the organization. And so there's always this recalibration at the beginning of every change effort, whether that's a, a digital transformation or a merger or an acquisition or a layoff or, you know, those are kind of big C changes or capital C changes. But there's also all these other little C or undercase C changes um, that really fall into the project category. And if you think about it, every project is a change effort because every project changes something. And if you think about the number of projects going on in an organization at any one time, not not to mention uh, something we might call a change effort, uh, that's a lot of change going on in the organization, and um, that's a lot of different approaches to change within an organization. And so that's that's part of the problem, and that kind of adds to the problem in terms of making it feel more more overwhelming, and and leaving people feeling like they just don't know where to start. Right. And I think one of the other big issues many leaders have with change is the faster pace by which we now have to make things happen. And unfortunately, that could lead to more knee-jerk reactions than reflective assessments of what we should be doing and how we should be doing things so as to be consistent with our organization's core values and culture. And as you point out in your book, we often resign ourselves to making these changes happen because the pain point it creates in our organization just becomes too hard for us to ignore. So how do we get people invested in making the change before things get too bad? How do we get them to move past the pain they feel about change and instead focus on the benefits they can see and appreciate they'll gain from embracing this change? Well, I think that part of what you have to do is to, to help people visualize the, those differences between the, the pain that they feel and, and the potential benefits that could result from making the change. And oftentimes... Uh, people resist the change, like you said, until it becomes too painful to ignore because it, it feels more comfortable doing what you know and, and doing what you're, you're comfortable doing. And it, it feels scary and it feels more challenging to step outside that, that comfort zone and make a change. And even though potentially and, and most likely at the end of the process of moving from the existing status quo to a new status quo, that where you're left is feeling better or feeling more efficient or more effective because the change has delivered those benefits and, and now you feel in a better place, but it seemed pretty scary to try to get there at the outset. And so, so I think that one way that people can do a better job of trying to move from the burning platform approach to change that others have popularized and, and towards a more continuous approach for change is to in, in some sense, see the burning platform as one way of potentially motivating change, but another way is to try to help people visualize the benefits and do so by getting people in a room and, and taking a more visual uh, or a more multimedia type of approach to trying to surface those benefits and, and qualify and quantify what those, those benefits are and also what the external forces are that could uh, force the burning platform scenario in the future and try to get people you know, talking and sharing and drawing and, and uh, 
you know, other things, getting their, their, their bodies moving to, to show what something might look like or, or creating a prototype of, of what a new situation might look like, whether that's prototyping a process or prototyping a, a, a system or prototyping a, a service that you might deliver or a new product. Um, but the better that we can do at working together in groups to visualize and make something tangible that we're looking at as a potential change, I think the better that we can move away from the burning platform scenario and move more towards a, uh, a scenario where people can tap into their innate uh, focus on the, the customer and delivering a better customer experience and see um, the potential for making all changes line up in support of something other than a burning platform, like delivering uh, a customer experience that's customer-centric and being a company that is customer-centric and, and sees its, its mission as one of continuous change because the customer is continuously changing. Right. I mean, this is one of the things you make as a point earlier on the book where, you know, as you just said, we don't want to look at change as being that burning platform, but rather we want to make change be something that's more native to the way we approach how we operate by, as you said, embracing that idea of continuous change. We're, we're now no longer looking at change and issues in these discrete, isolated terms, but really more holistically in terms of it being our new standard of the way we operate, where we shift our focus from that fear we have of our change because of the uncertainty it creates, right? To create, focusing more on that sense of curiosity to learn about, you know, we're talking the multimedia and these different tools and approaches that we can use to make continuous change an embedded characteristic for the way we operate. But how do we as leaders help our employees to make that transition in their perspective? From one where we fear change in terms of how it might disrupt the status quo of something that's familiar and known, to one where we're using our curiosity to fuel our drive to want to learn and grow, to explore those new opportunities and stretch our competencies to make us more competitive and more resilient. Well, I think that's that's the key, and that's one thing that I like to talk about a lot is that one of the, the keys towards creating the, the future that you want to have as an organization, one that's more capable of continuous change is to to work to replace that fear of the unknown with curiosity. And so if you focus as a leader on doing, identifying the things that you believe that within your cultural context and your, your structure that you can do uh, to in, replace fear with curiosity uh, goes, goes a long way. And I, and I think that as a leader, uh, and a leader that hopes to create a capability for continuous change, you have to, to work very hard to identify those things, those tangible things, those those first steps that given your own unique context that you can do to foster curiosity and to encourage it and to reward it if necessary. <laughs> um, because the more that people become curious, the less focused they are on, on fear. Because instead of running from change and hiding from change, they're more likely to run towards it. Once we help our employees shift the way they view change, so now they're actually willing to embrace those opportunities in those moments, the next thing then we have to do is change the manner in which we now plan for change. Because right now, whenever we talk and whenever I talk with leaders about any type of change initiative, it's typically something that's a discrete standalone process where they have a fixed starting point and end point 
when what we really should be doing then if we want to create change as being something we don't fear but we look at it as an opportunity to learn and grow is that we should be creating that environment or a process that's native to our organization where we're not discarding what we've learned through the process of driving that change forward but rather we use it to help shape and inform the way we'll plan new change initiatives going forward. So why is it important to our ability to effectively manage change? And how do we make our focus be less about the individual change initiatives that we might be putting through in our organization today? Instead, view them more as being about building that framework or process through which any type of change that we then have to go through can be managed and planned. Well, I think that's making that commitment as an organization that you are going to consciously plan change and that the the planning of change and the management of change and the leadership of change and the uh, maintenance of change and the the portfolio managing the portfolio of all your change in initiatives in an active way is a is a commitment that you want to make a commitment that you need need to make and a commitment that ultimately will drive the long-term success of the, the organization because customers are always moving and what they need and what they want is always changing. So that in, in and of itself forces change on the organization. And so it's not just that you can make an important change one time. So it's not just that you can effectively organize and execute a digital transformation to be able to deliver the experiences that customers expect and the channels that they expect at the time that they expect with the, the information that they expect. Um, it's, it's not just about executing a single change and, and transforming your company once, but it's about transforming the way that you view change in your organization and in doing so, uh, not only are you worried about executing change and, and being successful in an individual change effort, but you you see curiosity and learning as two of the pillars of your organization. And so you consciously set up your organization in a way that you have a methodology that you pursue change with and that you're continually evolving that as well. And so my change planning toolkit offers one potential way of organizing change in a conscious way and planning it and helping people move towards execution. Um, but whether you start with something like that or you build your own, I think it's important that every organization decide uh, how they believe that planning and executing change can be the most effective and they continually evolve that approach as they, they use it and learn from their, their experiences so that change is a competitive differentiator for their organization, change is a true capability of their organization, and that it doesn't stay in one single part of the organization, you know, in a, in a, a CMO or something, a change management office, and it's only those people that execute change or, or know how to run a change project, uh, which, as we mentioned before, every project is a, is a change project. But it's distributed. It's, it's consciously uh, streamed out through the entire organization and in much the same way that a company like Intuit has consciously chosen to distribute knowledge of design thinking throughout its organization. 
uh, or a company like Whirlpool has decided to consciously distribute knowledge of how successful innovation happens throughout their organization through a series of champions that uh, become knowledge centers in disparate parts of the organization and can help others within that part of the organization also learn so that ultimately every employee understands how to plan a change effort and, and what the process looks like uh, and can feed back into the process how to make it better based on their, their learnings. Um, and, and so so I think that's that's what it takes. Is it, it takes a conscious decision to build a capability. It takes a conscious decision to create and distribute some methods and tools and, and training and other things so that whatever change might present itself, no matter how big or how small, that the people in the organization have something to, to you know, to pull out of their toolbox. They they have something that they're they're familiar with using. They have something ultimately that they've had a, a, a part in creating because they've contributed some learnings from the, the usage of that and th where they saw an opportunity to make it better. And, and so over time, when any change presents itself, it doesn't seem quite so overwhelming. It doesn't seem so daunting. Uh, it seems like, great, okay, I see how that benefits our customers, I see how that benefits our suppliers, I see how that benefits our partners, I see how that benefits our constituents or whatever the, the, the context that your the change is focused on, and you, you just go do it. You go gather the, the people that can contribute the most to that change in, in a room, and you start getting all the information and knowledge that you need uh, expressed so that you can start to accurately plan your change for greatest success and and you, you start structuring things so that you will ultimately end up at a place that is what you have defined as success. Now, there's one thing that we should actually point out here, and that is that when it comes to change, because we're talking about changing these broad terms, we have to recognize that there are, in fact, three different types of change. And the kind of change you're having to deal with has a significant impact on how you should not only approach it, as you were saying, but also what's the best way to get that buy-in from those you lead in order to ensure a successful outcome. So what are these three major kinds of change, Braden? And how do they vary in terms of who we should be implicating in the process of driving change through our organization? Sure. So, so the the three types that I that I talk about in my book, uh, I actually identified from some some great work by the government of Queensland, Australia, and and so I'm a big believer in not trying to act like I'm some amazing expert that. You know, has created this thing out of nothing, and, and all. In a lot of cases, there's great thinking that people have come up with. That rather than, you know, calling it slightly different things and, and trying to act as if it's mine, I'd much rather quote the source, give credit to the source, and and help highlight the, the great work that others have done wherever possible. And so, the the three types of change that I'd like to talk about uh, come from the government of Queensland, Australia, and they are developmental change, transformational change and transitional change. And so developmental changes are, are those you make to improve your current business procedures. Uh, so they're, they're things to evolve what you already have. While transformational changes are, are kind of on the, the opposite end of the spectrum, where you're really trying to completely reshape your business strategy or processes and, and could result in a fundamental shift in your culture as well. And then you have 
more transitional changes where you're not improving existing things, but you're looking to replace existing items. But they're not as severe as a change. So a lot of projects that develop category, uh, while you know more more fundamental rethinks of how you do something would fall into that that transitional change category, and you know something like a digital transformation where you're trying to imagine how uh, if you were redesigning your company today with all the advanced tools, technologies, uh, processes, and, and, and people methodologies that we have today, you know, how would you design, redesign your company today, starting from scratch using everything that we have now versus how it's built and you know, A to B. Uh, so, so that's, those are the, the three different types of change that, that I think can help people identify what kind of change they're facing and craft their approach accordingly. And so how do we identify when we're talking about these different kinds of changes that our organization could face? How do we as leaders go about identifying who are the key stakeholders that we need to have around the table, who we need to implicate in the process of identifying how do we move forward with these change initiatives? Well, I think that there's there's a couple of key things there. There's um, identifying who has the knowledge that you need and who has the influence that you need. So every change effort, you know, has its components of what it's going to change. And to make that change, you really need to have a solid understanding of the current state. So you need to make sure that you have the people in the room that deeply understand the the characteristics of the the current state or the or the status quo uh and then you also need to to have the people in the room that have the the most possibility to make the changes that may result from the work that you're doing because if you just come up with what you think would make a, a perfect change uh, and you don't involve the people that are likely to have to catch that and do something with it, then you're going to significantly decrease your chances of success. So the, the earlier you can get people involved in the process that are likely to have to do the work of executing your change, the better. And so I think there's this tension between who knows and who's going to do that you have to, to manage. And so you want to have the, the people in the, in the room that have the knowledge, and that those may not be leaders, those also may not be subject matter experts uh, in a particular function, but who are the people that have the information that you need? So, you know, a person from finance might be knowledgeable in accounting methods and, and, and different things like that, but somebody in a completely different part, part of the organization might have the information about how, you know, customers want to pay for example, uh, and that's completely different than knowing how to operate a finance organization. So, so I think that those two things, knowing who has the information and knowing who's likely to expedite the outcomes of the potential change and making sure that you have both of those key groups in the, in the organization uh, pre present in the room uh, is definitely important. So far, we've been talking about change, though, in terms of its impact on the organization and how how we can help our employees embrace and adapt to these new realities. But I now want us to focus on that 
critical key to the success of any change initiative, and that's the people we lead, and in particular, those who are either implicated or affected by the changes we need to bring forth. Now, you dedicate a full chapter to examining what you refer to as the people side of change, where you point out how employees can be sorted into groups ranging from strong supporters to active resistors to the change initiative with what you call the passive resistors and the disaffective occupying the largest segment of our employee base. So, Brain, could you talk about how do leaders go about identifying these different groups and what should we be communicating to these different groups to get them on board and invested in the process of change, not just in the short run, but over the long term as well? Sure. So, so I think as we approach any change, uh, we're going to have a certain number of, of people that support it and a certain number of people who feel threatened by it. And I think that one of the, the best things that you can do going in is try to identify ahead of time who's likely to resist and who's, who's going to want to help. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, a number of different ways that people can help. And that's, you know, can be everything from, you know, providing some, some history or um, offering to join your team to, to provide you with additional resources uh, to, you know, lending their influence to help remove obstacles or, or helping to evangelize for the change effort. You know, there's a lot of different ways that, that people can, can help. And, and so identifying who can help and who will resist and then also uh, the reasons for that resistance uh, and that could be you know things like not being able to really understand what the, the need is for the change or how it's relevant to them uh, but it can also be you know come back to that point of fear which can be a loss of a loss of certainty or, or some, some feeling of a loss of purpose or status um, but oftentimes one of the biggest reasons people resist is the loss of mastery. So somebody goes, sees themselves as potentially going from being the expert to, to being, you know, not knowing anything about how the, the new way works. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times people fight against the change for that reason more than anything else. Um, but you can also end up with resistors because you have developed a low level of trust in the organization. Organizations that have a high level of trust are more likely to embrace change. Organizations that have a low level of trust are more likely to fight change. And so if you're really going to try to build a capability for continuous change, you definitely have to look at the level of trust in your organization and potentially even try to make changes within the organization to improve that before you even start. Because I think that's one of the, the keys organizationally to, uh, over time, how successful or unsuccessful you're going to be with change. Because when people have a high level of trust, they're more likely to believe that the change is in their best interests or in the best interests of the customers or whatever your most important constituency might be. And so, so if you look at those reasons why people may help and the reasons why people may resist, then you can start to identify people that you want to pull into the project. And you may even pull in people that you think are likely to be strong resistors of the project uh, so that you can get a strong understanding of the kinds of resistance that you're going to face. But as you mentioned, there are a number of different kinds of potential change reactions. And so one of the, the frameworks that I highlight in the book is called the five change reactions. And, 
And the five potential change reactions that I highlight are, as, as you mentioned, you have the strong supporters, the tepid supporters, the disaffected, the passive resistors, and the passionate resistors. And also, as you mentioned, most of them fall in the middle. Most of the people are going to fall in the middle and either be disaffected, which means, eh, I don't care, you know, whatever. Um, and, they, and they probably won't even hardly participate uh, or worry it or even potentially read your communication. Uh, but then you also have the passive resistors, people that might do little things here and there to uh, torpedo your change or make it more difficult to make it make your change. And so as you look at these, these five different groups, you may want to communicate with them in, in different ways. You may want to highlight different aspects of your change. Uh, and you're not necessarily trying to turn passionate resistors into strong supporters. But if you can shift that middle even slightly towards the support side, you're likely to increase your chances for success significantly. And so, so that's, that's what I think that you want to do is to focus on the, the bulk of the people and shifting them a little bit. So don't try to, Take, make the people that hate you love you, but make the, the people that aren't so sure about you think you're okay. Make sure that the people that dislike you a little bit at least at least go neutral. Um, and, and you know, if you were to look at it in personal terms, but if you look at it in organizational terms, you know, you want people that dislike your effort a little bit to at least go neutral, and the people that are neutral to at least start to develop a little bit of a positive feeling about your change effort and focus most of your change communications on shifting those two middle groups of people which are the largest right and you know i think your point that you brought up earlier about the importance of fostering that sense of trust is so critical because we often don't consider that in the context of addressing change in our organization because we just again tend to look at it as just being this process and not recognizing that if we don't have that already established strength of relationship because we've established that basis of trust, then it becomes hard for people to want to buy in into something that's going to lead them down a path of uncertainty. Of course, there is another key challenge, though, we face with any kind of change, and that is how do we address or overcome the various challenges and obstacles that we otherwise wouldn't have faced if we hadn't made the change to begin with? And indeed, this is often one of the strongest reasons why people resist change, because they see the kinds of obstacles we'd be putting ourselves through and consequently the current status quo, regardless of whether it's really acceptable or not, becomes our preferred position to operate from. So once we've identified the different players in our organization in terms of the impact this change will have on them, their support or their resistance to this change, how do we go about addressing the inevitable challenges and obstacles we'll face? Well, I think that that one of the, the keys is to upfront in the earliest part of your planning process to, to get people starting to visualize the, the current state and the future state and put as much uh, detail around both as you can, both in terms of what it sounds like, what it feels like, what it smells like, what it might taste like, if there is such a thing for the change that you're pursuing. But, you know, try to think about all the different senses and, and what the change is, is going to, to feel like and make it as real as you possibly can uh, in your group, in your change planning group. Uh, because as you start to imagine in as much detail as possible what that future state might look like and 
potentially even start to look at the, the transition between the current state and the future state, some of those barriers and obstacles may start to surface, and some of the areas that you may want to, to focus on and, and dig a little deeper to try to identify are the, the areas of looking for psychological barriers, political barriers, um, logistical obstacles that you might run into. Uh, you know, what are the, the financial considerations that you need to, to think through? Are you going to run into obstacles or barriers around around money or around getting resources to, to make the change happen? Uh, and then are there things that might come from outside that may affect your, your change effort that may uh, pose a threat to it or pose uh, a challenge in terms of it being able to be successful? Uh, and so... So I think that you know, as you look at those those four key areas, psychological and political, logistical, financial, and external, uh, you, and, and dig deep, you should be able to start uncovering some of the, the details of what the, the potential barriers and obstacles might be in each of those. And you know, for example, if you were to look at the, the psychological and political barriers and obstacles, you, you might dig into, again, the, the trust level. Um, but then also the cultural readiness of the organization for the change that you're proposing. Um, look at any potential misunderstandings that, that might occur from pursuing this uh, particular change or as people start to hear that it's being talked about and, and considered. Uh, and then also what the, the organizational politics are in the organization and what impact those might have on the change that you're trying to pursue. Uh, so, so barriers and obstacles are, are definitely a key thing to focus on, and it's one of the reasons why it's right in the middle of the change planning canvas that people that, that get a copy of my book will get access to uh, on my website, charting-change.com. So I think that barriers and obstacles are important. Barriers and obstacles are definitely something that you should focus on. Um, but we can come up with a plan to solve for some of them and hopefully all of them. And so in the book, I go into details about how you can work to, to go over the obstacles, go under them, go around them or go through them uh, and provide a, a framework or a process for overcoming barriers and obstacles that I, that I hope will be helpful to people uh, and not really just in a change situation, but if you think about it, we're always facing barriers and obstacles in everything that we do uh, in our business lives and even our personal lives. Brayden, I want to switch gears here and focus on one chapter in particular from your book, and I'm sure you know which one it is. Is the one that I wrote a guest expert piece for your book, and that is the chapter where you discuss what's involved in leading change. Now, typically when we talk about leadership and change, the focus tends to be at the starting point of how do we get people invested and mobilized and helping us to make this vision a reality. In this chapter, what this typically involves are the steps you identify as being where we identify and sell the problem we want to change. And usually where leaders start to step back is when we begin that process of communicating the change, because here's where we're starting to put measures into action. And for most leaders, this is where we think now that the process has started, we're not needed as much in order to get things going. However, as you point out, there are still several more change states that leaders need to play an active role in to ensure this change we want to make really succeeds. 
So could you describe more, what are the various stages in the change process that surface after we start communicating the change, and how do leaders need to be more involved in those steps? Sure. So I think that one of the main ways that leaders need to stay engaged in the change process and and all elements of it is around that aspect of trust because leaders more than anybody else do more to either maintain or destroy trust than anyone else in the organization. And so as we go through the change process, the number one role that leaders have is to work to protect trust and to build trust rather than destroy it. And, and so I think that as we, as we look at um, the, the role of leaders, one of the, the key roles is to control the flow of change. And one of the things that I introduce in the book is, is a, a framework that I call the flow of change. And it has 11 key aspects, and, and we'll just kind of highlight a few of them. But you know, number one, as, as we mentioned, you have to start with start status quo. And you have to focus a lot of energy on clearly identifying the problem that you're trying to solve. Now, a lot of times in organizations, we jump too quickly to solutions. And part of the role of the leader is to try to help people not go there too quickly. The leader can help in a great deal on helping people push farther to deeper define the problem and clearly define the problem so that the change that you get at the end matches what your intentions were. So it's, it's the old adage that if you ask the question, question wrong, you'll get a wrong answer. <laughs> so so there's a lot of effort needs to be spent on identifying the problem, and the leader has a huge role to play in helping to sell the problem. So in the same way that we don't jump to, or we shouldn't jump to solutions too quickly, we also uh, don't want to start selling them too quickly. Uh, and it's more important to sell the, you want to sell the problem first before you start selling solutions. And so you want to make sure that people across the organization understand that what we're talking about potentially changing actually is a problem. If people don't feel that it's a problem, they're going to resist the change. So one of the first roles and key roles for the, the leader, in addition to, to helping people clearly identify what the problem is, is to help sell the problem across the organization. Help sort of set the stage for change by helping everyone understand uh, why change is necessary. And so once we sell the problem, then we can start digging deeper to, to look at you know, both what needs to end, but also what needs to change and work on our communications to, to uh, communicate both of those. And so the leader has a role to play in that, obviously, but your your communications people and even potentially your marketing people should be involved in helping to craft your communications. Because I think too often we think about change communications as a boson. Uh, and in a lot of cases, depending on how big the change is, change can be one of the most important things that the organization does. And you know, we'll spend a lot of money and hire agencies and, and other things like that to, to help communicate a change. Uh, 
um, for a customer, but we don't necessarily always spend the same level of effort on communicating changes internally and doing things like targeting, segmenting, and choosing the channel consciously that we want to communicate through, making sure it's available at the time that we need to send the communication, uh, and a lot of different other aspects of effective communications. And so leaders can help shepherd that process and uh, make sure that, that, that the messages that we want to send are actually being received and leaders especially the leaders involved in the change planning process, the ones that are most directly connected to uh, all the aspects of the change that have been considered and, and talked about and visualized are the best ones to help communicate in a lot of cases uh, and to help build support and to build uh, a network of additional advocates for the change. And so communication is obviously an important part. Uh, and as we look at communicating, it's not just communicating the change, but also helping to organize and execute something celebration about around the things that are going to end. Obviously, the, the way that we've done things over time had a, had a purpose and a reason. We didn't just decide to do it that way just because. Uh, and so some people have gotten really good at doing things a certain way that's going to end or using a certain tool that's now going to end. And so in some ways, it's good to, to hold a funeral or to celebrate the ending of whatever is being evolved or replaced as a result of your change. And then as you move forward and you start actually making the change, you want to you wanna try it on. You're going to go through a period of disequilibrium, uh, which is going to necessitate support from leadership and necessitate the leader to help reinforce the change. And there's going to be a period after you start making the change that the leader is going to have to serve a role of, of being a bridge between the change planning team and the, the change execution team and, and the people on the ground uh, and the people that are doing the work day to day and whose, whose world is potentially being changed and helping to be that bridge to help reinforce the change and make sure that you know, if it was, say, a launching a new system, like they're going to implement SAP that, you know, it just doesn't go on people's desktop, but people are actually using it. Um, because ultimately what you want to do is end up with a new way of doing things. And you don't want to implement and not have adoption. Or you don't want to communicate a change and have nobody actually start doing it the new way. And so leaders need to be there along every step of the way to, to serve that role of maintaining trust and, and maintaining consistency of communication so that what people think we're trying to do is consistent with what we're actually trying to do. Now, Braden, we've clearly covered a lot of ground here today, and there's definitely much more that we could discuss, but I want to use this moment to get you to give one piece of advice to our listeners regarding the process of charting change. Again, given how we do like to share those inspirational quotes about the power and benefits of change, but at the same time resisting change in the way we do or see things, what would you say would be the best place for people to start to demystify change, to make it less scary and something that we're more willing to approach? Because the reality is that change is not only inevitable, it's going to happen whether we like it or not. So... How can we overcome those fears and truly open ourselves up to the nature of change? 
Well, I think one place to start is with what you know. So, too often we focus on what we don't know, but start with what you know, and then look at what you don't know, and then look at what you need to know, and then look at what it would be nice to know. And as you start to put pen to paper and you and move away from thinking and worry, magical things start to happen. And as you start to invite people in to comment and to add to what you've captured, even more magical things happen. And so I think we need to move out of our own heads and into our collaborative spaces to start making change less of an individual effort and more of a team effort. I like that. Love it. That's an excellent point and a great place for us to cap our conversation today. And I want to thank you, Braden, for coming on my show and sharing your insights on how we can better manage change as your book is really a wonderful resource and guide for any leader organization. And it's not just looking at how to successfully guide their current change initiative forward, but really how we can make continuous change a part of our organizational DNA, which is why I was delighted to have been included among the guest experts featured in your latest book. And I was happy that you agreed to participate. I, I think it's a great book. book. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I think that it takes a, a much different, a much more human approach to change. And I hope people will enjoy it. And um, you know, I'm open to, to feedback and continuing to involve the, uh, evolve the change planning toolkit. I really appreciate you taking the time to come share your insights with my listeners today, Braden. Thanks, Bender. I've been talking with Braden Cowley about his latest book, Charting Change. To learn more about Braden's work, visit the webpage for this episode at tanvirnasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage or by filling out the contact form at tanvirnasir.com. And if you found my show on Stitcher Radio or iTunes, please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tanvi Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.